the word of the living God. John chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 to 5, verse 14, verse 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Thanks, Gordon. Even though we've finished our, officially our series in uh, John uh, for this term, I just thought that we'd wrap up uh, coming towards Christmas, uh, looking at this incredible uh, miracle of Jesus, particularly coming as a baby, and uh, the incarnation, you know, God coming as a human being. Uh, and so I thought that we'd stay in John uh, and take a a little bit, a few soundings from the opening of John to explore that a little bit more together. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll get stuck into looking a little bit closer at this. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that it reveals who you are. Please be with us now as we contemplate again uh, the wonder of your son becoming flesh for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to ask you a question, uh, what's the greatest miracle? Uh, the incarnation, that is, God coming as a man, or the resurrection, what would you say? Which is the most incredible miracle? Resurrection? Yeah, years ago, uh, I... There was a time when I just couldn't stop focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I heard a lot about his death, about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, uh, but not so much about his resurrection. Uh, and so I started to explore more and more the reality and the implications of Jesus' physical and historical resurrection from the dead, which um, uh, not only confirmed that his sacrifice wasn't just for uh, it wasn't for his sin; it was for others. Uh, that our justification hung on his resurrection from the dead, uh, that his resurrection was the, the harbinger of a new age, an inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth into this age, the wonderful beginning of the end, you know, a glimpse into paradise, the hope of eternal life. I also came to uh, really treasure that the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus powerfully from the dead is living in me uh, with the same promise, the same promise of resurrection uh, one day. That Jesus' resurrection into glory, in a sense, was actually mine. <laughs> As the Holy Spirit unites me to him, 
not only am I dead to sin, but I'm alive to Christ, uh, my risen Saviour. And his, resur- his resurrection life then, it's inevitably pulling me into a similar resurrected life now, that I'll share with him in a fully embodied life, full of free of suffering and pain and death. And so, because of this, I just came to treasure Jesus' resurrection a lot. Uh, his resurrection from the dead is the most precious of God's miracles. Uh, of all the wonders of God, the resurrection of Jesus was just a standout for me, and I loved it, and I do love it. Uh, but, as I got to thinking a little bit more about the Incarnation, about God coming as flesh, well, then my thinking on the greatest of miracles started to change a little. So the idea that God came as the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was just staggering. Even more starkly, God being born. The idea of God being born. Because unlike the resurrection, Jesus' conception and birth, it's a one-off event. Uh, While many will actually follow Jesus into resurrected glory, no one is or will be God becoming human again. Furthermore, while Jesus' resurrection is truly remarkable, you know, uh, dead men just don't rise from the dead, there is, nonetheless, there's, there's something of a continuity between Jesus' body before and after he rose from the dead, right? Yet while glorious, uh, he was still recognisable after his resurrection as the man, Jesus. So there's some continuity there. But, but the gap between the absolutely free, limitless, eternal God and a dependent, limited, time-bound human baby well, that just seems so ridiculously vast to imagine that they can any, in any possible sense be one and the same. Simply put, uh, the incarnation is the most incredible and mind-boggling miracle. It's not a wonder that we marvel on it every year and why we should marvel on it at every Christmas. So, uh, staying mostly within the Gospel of John this morning, uh, as we have been all this term, I thought that we'd explore a little bit more this this incredible thing of Jesus, God in time and space, uh, just a little bit more. Firstly, by just looking at the uh, the mind-boggling historical reality of it, uh, and then secondly, to see this as not just mind-boggling, uh, but also moving, because it's the greatest act of humility. So, that's where we're going. Firstly, see the mind-boggling historical reality of the Incarnation. And then secondly, uh, we'll see how amazingly humble that act was and is. So, first up, mind-boggling historical reality. As John, uh, one of Jesus' closest mates, testifies right from the start of the Gospel, as we read earlier, words I'm sure many of us are familiar with, uh, but it's actually worth just reading them again and slowing down on them. So let's read them again, just slowly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the series or heard about the series The, the Chosen. It's a crowd-funded thing, actually. It's a historical drama TV series focusing on the disciples that Jesus gathers around him, hence the title, The Chosen. And while the series uh, is definitely not the Bible, and it takes uh, quite a lot of creative license on many things, nonetheless, there's some really touching uh, scenes in it. Uh, one of them is when Jesus has been invited to preach in a synagogue and he's presented with uh, the books of Moses. And he calls his disciple John over to chat uh, about where in the Bible he should preach from. And they have a bit of a chat, and in their exchange, Jesus asks uh, him, well, who's worthy of anything? And John says, you, but no man, apparently. Jesus says, I'm, I am a man, John. And Jesus replies, and yet... And then Jesus turns to him and says, I am who I am, which is the name that God gave himself to Moses, right? The I am. John then goes on to uh, to mention, well, that he loves the beginning, the beginning of Genesis, as Jesus kind of urges him to continue to, well, what, what, what should I read from? And he goes, well, I love the beginning of Genesis, where God just speaks and creates the heavens and the earth by his word. And then he mentions, he says, oh, the Greeks used the word for word, logos, uh, to describe divine reason. What gives the world form and meaning? And uh, in the series, Jesus says, oh, I like that. And the episode ends uh, many years later with John reading these opening words that he'd written in the Gospel of John, which sound very similar to the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The logos was with God and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. John and the other disciples, they were there. They were there with Jesus. They saw him perform incredible miracles and, and, and glorious miracles and signs. They saw him uh, back from the dead and they touched him and they ate him, with him uh, they they knew his mother. They knew Mary. And they were nonetheless convinced he is God of God, the Son of the Father, the eternal Logos, who gives the universe, the entire cosmos, form and meaning. Uh, Jesus himself will later say to uh, Peter, which we looked at last week, uh, Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. He says this to Pilate. In fact, for the... For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Now, throughout John, we've seen that Jesus understood himself to be God. 
the one through whom and for whom the entire cosmos was created and yet come in flesh to give the world meaning by revealing the truth of God to any who will listen. But to do this, it means doing something uh, impossible and mind-boggling because all flesh, all human life is bound in time and space. And these things, time and space, uh, they're things that God's actually created, right? Time and space, they're not intrinsic to God's being. He's eternal and he's infinite. His wisdom, his power and his holiness, they exceed all measures, all limits. No, No time or space can measure him. No human mind can comprehend him because all our thinking is done in time and space. It's done thinking in categories that demand time and space. To describe God as before time or beyond space is just to highlight how impossible it is to talk about him, let alone to understand him. Because what's the word before? It's a, it's a, it's a time word, right? <laughs> and, and the word beyond, that's a space word. So to talk about God as being beyond or time is, is using categories that don't essentially define him. God can't be known as he is in himself, unless, unless he reveals himself. But how can he do this? How can he do it? It's impossible for the infinite to be bound in time and space, because surely as, as soon as the infinite binds itself in time and space, it would no longer be infinite, right? would it? And yet God has done this in Christ Jesus. Remarkably. Uh, when Mary gave birth in that stable, the baby Jesus was born, but God was born. Fully human, fully God. The infinite, amazingly, impossibly, wrapped in time and space. With no violence done to either his divinity or his humanity. Perfectly one person with two natures, divine and human. It's A miracle. A miracle. A supreme, mind-boggling miracle. And people, not surprisingly, have tried to wrap their heads around this historical, mind-boggling reality for centuries. Uh, And they've necessarily had to do it using analogies or metaphors or pictures. Uh, Like the Church Father Augustine, uh, he compares the this phenomenon of Jesus coming in the flesh, of God coming in the flesh, uh, to thinking and speech. Right, this is what he says. He wrote this. In order that what we are thinking may reach the mind of the listener through the fleshly ears, that which we have in mind is expressed in words and is called speech. Okay? But our thought is not transformed into sounds. It remains entire in itself and assumes the form of words by means of which it may reach the ears without suffering any deterioration in itself. Yeah? (laughs) In the same way, the word of God was made flesh without change that he might dwell among us. So Augustine's saying it's just like thoughts, our thoughts get embodied into speech, so God the Son, the word, embodied himself in Jesus of Nazareth. Right, And just as our thoughts, when expressed in speech, don't become sounds, right? our thoughts don't become sounds, they retain their identity, 
uh, as immaterial thought, so too the word in becoming man doesn't lose his divine identity. Convinced? Yeah? So as thought becomes speech without ceasing to be thought, so God became human without ceasing to be God. Now, there's a bunch of uh, significant issues with this comparison if you're trying to prove the incarnation. But if you accept the testimony of Jesus and the apostles who were there and heard and saw him what he, and, and did what he, saw what he did and what he said and heard what he said, uh, that he is God come in the flesh, then I think it's not an unhelpful way to think of how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Others have uh, thought that a good way to think about uh, this is uh, like learning another language. And so the uh, theologian, uh, John McKinley, he, he imagines uh, this, this story. So imagines a, imagine an Englishman, uh, Joe, meeting a Russian woman, Olga, that he wants to marry. He really likes her and he wants to marry her. But she doesn't speak, uh, he doesn't speak Russian and she doesn't speak English. So Joe goes to Moscow and immerses himself in learning Russian. After several weeks, he's got about 345 words of Russian under his belt and uh, he and Olga are able to say a little bit to each other, which is good because if he doesn't have any Russian, there's no relationship with Olga, uh, which means no hope for marriage, right? But he's got a limited capacity for expressing himself in Russian or participating in the Russian language. He can't do everything in Russian that he can do in English. But he's he's got to work with what he's got, right? He's got to work within the constraints of his second language if there's ever going to be any hope with Olga. And uh, John McKinley, he reckons that Joe's experience here is a little bit like Jesus. As he lives as one person in two natures, divine and human at the same time, as God the Son, Jesus is a native God speaker, so to speak, uh, but with human as his second language. And as such, he suffers the limitation of expressing himself according to human physicality, uh, being bound by time, having a created will and mind. But he does this so that you can have a relationship, hopefully an intimate one, with people in the world. Yeah? My favourite picture, my favourite analogy, uh, though, that I've come across recently, um, is by the Christian writer and thinker, C.S. Lewis, author of the popular Narnia series. Uh, He compares Christ in his coming to earth in flesh and then returning to the Father in flesh Uh, as something like a pearl diver. So this is what he says. One may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to colour and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both coloured now that they have come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colourless in the dark, he lost his colour too. Now, I I find this picture quite moving. The idea that for God to come 
as baby Jesus is for God to deep dive into the dark and lose his colour. As he gets laid down in the muck on the bottom of the ocean floor. More than that, as he grows into a man and gets nailed to a cross, it's like he's, he's covered in all the ooze and slime and decaying dead stuff on the ocean floor, the stuff that we are, because of the rubbish way that we've treated God. Jesus died in our darkness, he died in our muck, in our place, so that he might rise again from the dead and like a pearl diver, go back up again, Back to glory, back to colour and light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to get, more precious than a pearl, the souls of all those who trust in him. That's you and me, if we trust in him. You and me, who are now held by him, (laughs) full of colour and eternal life, in the light of his glory. The glory of God in time and space. All because the infinite God humbles himself in time and space as Jesus. Which brings us to the second point. With God coming as the man Jesus, we see the greatest act of humility. As the Apostle Paul lays out in uh, Philippians, a letter that he wrote, where he writes of Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can see something of Christ the pearl diver in this, can't you? Going down and then coming up. Only that God the Son made himself nothing by being made in human likeness. Humbling himself, not just into human flesh, but to the ignoble death of death on a cross. That's a Roman invention, crucifixion. Not just to torture people slowly to death, but it was actually designed to strip people of their humanity. You know, you picture a man uh, stripped naked, totally naked, exposed and unable to cover his nakedness because his hands appeared back splayed like you might an insect, a grotesque-looking insect that people don't want to look at but can't help themselves to because it's just so public. It's out there in the open for everyone to see and it's so macabre. It's like a car crash. You don't want to look, but you can't. You can't help it. And that's what God humbled himself to. From glory to humanity to an insect. Starting with coming as a baby, the baby Jesus, God humbles himself. Why? Why does he do this? Well, as we read earlier, it's so that you and I might know God. As John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, 
is in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, can ever see him, or know him. He is beyond time and space. Our tiny little minds are incapable of properly apprehending him as he is in himself. And so he had to stoop down. He had to stoop low for us. As God the Son became flesh in time and space, he took a dive. And as if in simple childlike language, he made God known to us. Speaking as if to a child. Speaking tenderly and patiently and simply and lovingly to us of our need for forgiveness from him, of our need for him if we're to have everlasting life, of our need to know him as much as our heads and our hearts can handle, to know him as the one and only God who is so keen for us to know him. He humbled himself incredibly in and through Jesus so that we might not only know him, but that we might love him and love him as Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. I was watching a contestant on uh, the 2013 USA X Factor the other day on YouTube, as you do. Uh, his name is Jorge. Uh, He's an ice cream van man. <laughs> That's his job. Uh, day job, looking for a break. And let's face it, he's a slick and beautiful looking man. And he had a pretty good voice too, so, uh, he had all, had it all. But here's the thing. He knew it. He knew he had it. He knew he was good looking. He knew he was, uh, impressive. Uh, and it was ugly. One of the female judges that he was trying to hit on throughout the performance ended up saying to him, you know, you know what's really cute? It's humility. And that's something you lack a little bit of. Jorge, he was an ice cream man. He thought he owned the world. But as good as he looked and sounded, he just came off as ugly. Whereas God the Son literally owned the world, the cosmos, and then some, and in humbling himself so, so much, came to earth as a baby and suffered the limitations of a man to die like an insect for us so that we might know God. It's impossible to know that and not love him. C.S. Lewis called God coming in the flesh, the incarnation, the grand miracle. And I'm pretty inclined to agree with him. Not only is Jesus the impossible made possible, his humility speaks not only of his love for us, but, but of just how lovely he is. And how deserving he is of our adoration, of our affection, of our love, of our worship. Now, the rest of today, tomorrow, the day after that, every single day into eternity future. To the praise of his glorious name. Our great God. Come to us in time and space.
And I'm going to pray that that would be the case for us. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus. We say this a lot, but please don't let the magnitude of the reality of what your Son has done escape us. May it arrest us. May the mind-boggling historical reality of, of your Son, God of God, coming in the flesh, move us. May we see in Jesus such humility as he took a dive for us so that he might take us out of the muck and the mire and the the decay of this life subject to sin, our sin and the sin of all those around about us. to return to you in the flesh, holding aloft his prize of our souls, won by his sacrifice. Our Father, it's dizzying to think of the incredible feat it was for your Son, God of God, to become flesh for us. And may it arrest our hearts and our souls and our minds and captivate us and drive us to love and adore you for the humble God that you are such that we can't help but worship you now and always as you deserve and as we want to and love to. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.